Well, thank you, worship team, for bringing to us those soul-warming truths this morning on this frigid day. I can probably rightly say to you guys, without being a negative comment, you indeed are the frozen chosen this morning. Um, So thank you for being here on this brutally cold day. I was walking from the parking lot to the church building and just immediately realized I did not wear enough layers this morning. So um, so we're going to warm up the place with uh, God's word this morning. So thank you for being here. This picture here, um, that is me. I'm the young one in that particular picture right there. That picture essentially sums up where I found my identity throughout my college years. I was the leader of the senior aircraft design team at Oklahoma State University in 1991. And at that particular presentation, executives from Boeing were there at that final project presentation. One of them is quoted in that newspaper article saying, I was so impressed with the Pegasus project. The Pegasus was the name of that little airplane that we designed right there. He said, I'd hire the whole class if I was still a manager at Boeing. Another one said this, I'd never, I, I've seen a lot of presentations. That was the best one I've seen. Folks, I'm not saying all of this to boast about me this morning. I'm going to show you something about where I was wrapped up in in my college years Frankly, at that moment in time, I was stunned by the accolades that I was receiving there. When I was leading that project, I actually had no clue on how to lead a dozen senior engineers and business majors toward the completion of that particular project. That was my first time I'd ever led something like that, and I really had no clue. But my cluelessness certainly didn't stop me from reveling in all of the accolades that uh, the bigwigs heaped upon me. I certainly thought I was a big deal. Impressive Boeing presentation there, having received the Dean's Award for Engineering in my final year at Oklahoma State University, and heading to the university where astronauts were birthed. Where was that, my friends? Purdue University. You know, I was not the hotshot athlete. I was not the studly ladies' man. I was not the entertaining life of the party socialites. I was not the entrepreneur making all kinds of money. But you know what? I was the one going to the hotshot um, University, Purdue, to be a hotshot astronaut. I had a sense of myself that I was a, a big deal. While at OSU, Oklahoma State University, I was a very, very big fish in a very little pond there. But in 1991, I came to Purdue, and there I quickly found out that I was a very little fish in a very big pond My graduate-level linear algebra class just ate my lunch. During that, I I was just hoping the final exam that I would pass it. Um, I had never worked so hard academically as I did that first semester in Professor Howell's orbital mechanics class where they had the torturous assignment of having to recreate mathematically the Voyager mission. Um, I began to struggle with depression at Purdue, being the little fish. You know, our identity, our sense of who we are, is cultivated over time in trying to be somebody or find significance or, in some cases, just find security in this life. What happens when your sense of self, when we talk about identity, we're talking about how you view yourself. Well, what happens when your sense of self is challenged by circumstances that demonstrate that there are those who are bigger somebodies than compared to you, or you find out in some way that what you've been living on or living by, you're not secure anymore? 
You know, if you live long enough, God will bring about circumstances showing you that, that you're not as much of a big deal as you thought you were. It only took me 22 years to realize that. And when you realize that, you can become devastated or hopeless, trying to run harder on life's performance treadmill. The now aging pop star Madonna, I've, I've used this quote before from her, but in Vanity Fair, the magazine Vanity Fair in 1990, 1991, I believe it was, she said this, because even though I become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. And she has a little bit of insight about herself when she says this, my struggle has never ended and it probably never will in her attempt to be somebody. I've also quoted Michael Phelps before from this pulpit who reflected, who am I outside of the swimming pool? You know, from the womb, we are always on the verge of a cosmic existential crisis. I had to look up the word existential crisis this past week, meaning that some, when we come to a point realizing that what we've been living for is not providing or will not provide the meaning or purpose in life that we thought we were shooting for, so that existential crisis, hoping that the meaning and the identity that we have built for ourselves will not crumble or will not be shattered. How calming and stabilizing would it be in the new year not to have to keep up with the Joneses or not to have the tension of envy in my soul for those who have more or are better skilled athletically or intellectually or professionally? Well, let me say a word about those who have been maybe habitually abused in their past, maybe as a child. For those who have been repeatedly physically or sexually abused in the past, not to have to maintain an identity that is striving to perform in a way to keep you in control of your circumstances so that you will not be hurt anymore. Wouldn't it be restful to have an identity received by God and not have to be achieved that is stable and cannot be crushed? With those thoughts in mind, if you will, please turn to two places in Scripture this morning. Acts chapter 19 and Ephesians chapter 1. Okay? Acts chapter 19 and Ephesians chapter 1. Acts chapter 19 is on page 108 in the New Testament, the back section of the Bible in the chair in front of you. And Ephesians 1 is on page 150 in the back section of the Bible in the chair in front of you. We will start in Acts 19 if you want to go there first. Today we are launching our new series called Building Upon Our Heritage. And as Pastor Viers, who's right now conveniently in the DR enjoying 80-degree weather, he's going to have a shock on Tuesday when he comes back. But as he talked to us about last week, Pastor Viers mentioned last week that um, that theme, Building Upon Our Heritage, is, is coming from this year being faith's 60th anniversary of Faith Church's existence. Do you remember the three words he had us to um, review last week about what this year is all going to be about? What was the first one? Remember the first one? Okay, some of you remember celebration. Number two starts with a C. Okay, completion of of the many blessings, projects that God has given us. And number three, you could have uh, courage or (laughs) Calebism, okay, as we think about uh, planning for the future as well. This year, we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians to help us with this theme, primarily because Ephesians about, is about God's one thing, one, God, his, his plan, A, B, and C for this age, and that's the church. 
John MacArthur says this, Ephesians focuses on the basic doctrine of the church, what it is and how believers function within it. So our heritage being the church, our identity stemming from what we have received in Christ through the church and our efforts to build upon those must be oriented around God's plan A, B, and C for this age and it is what he's doing in and through his people called the church. Now I want to start with a bit of background on the city of Ephesus in which the letter of Ephesians it was written to the saints or God's people at the church of Ephesus there in the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a big deal. Okay? Um, when you think about some of these New Testament churches, you may think, uh, I don't know much about them, and today we don't know much about them, but Ephesus in its time was a big deal. So, faith family, when you think of a big deal type of city in the United States, which kind of city do you think of? Okay, I see the Blakes. They have a, 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 da, a son and daughter-in-law in New York City. You think of New York City, a big deal type of a church, a center of culture, a city, a city of finances, a center of arts, and a center of entertainment. You know, people who go to New York City, why do they go there? To make a name for themselves, the song. If I can make it here, I can make it New York, New York, okay? Or Ephesus, Ephesus, Ephesus was all of that plus. You don't normally think of New York City as a city of sports or a city of learning necessarily, but Ephesus was also a center of athletics, a center of learning, and a center of religion, okay? And as for its importance, I did not know this before I studied this passage this week and studied a little bit more about Ephesus this week, but as for its importance in what was the predominant nation empire at the time, the Roman Empire, it was second only to Rome. I had not known that, but its importance was second only to Rome. And the Apostle Paul goes there. Now, he eventually goes to Rome as well, but he goes there to establish God's plan. Let's look at uh, Acts 19, some excerpts from Acts 19, the first time Paul goes there. This is where the church of Ephesus started. Verse 1, Acts chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Jump to verse 7. How many disciples? There were not many There were about, in all, 12 men. That's where it started. And, verse 8, he entered the synagogue. That's what he did first. He always went to the Jews first to reason with them. Continued speaking out boldly for three months. Jump to verse 9. But when some of those in the synagogue became hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way... The way was the term that the early folks gave to the Christians at that moment in time. So some of them were speaking evil of the Christians before the people. Paul withdrew from them and took away the disciples, those 12 men, and reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So Paul withdrew from the Jews and went to the Gentiles. And you'll notice there's a school there. There was not a school in every city. This was a learning center there of the Gentiles, the school of Tyrannus. So Ephesus was a center of learning as well. Verse 10, this took place for two years. He was there ministering. 
So that, and this is fascinating, all who lived in Asia, okay, this is modern-day Turkey today, but all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How was it that all heard? I mean, Paul was in Ephesus. The only way that all in Asia could hear is that if Ephesus was some kind of a hub, just like things that happen in New York City on the East Coast come and spread to the rest of the heartland, things that happen in L.A. come and spread to the rest of the heartland. How did the word of God spread? Because of Ephesus was a big deal of a city, a hub. Okay, so verse 18, many of those also who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together, city of learning, and began to burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So a city of learning, a city of wealth. And notice the change in identity when they change from this kind of a learning to something else. Verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Verse 23, jump to verse 23. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was the city's chief god right there, a lady deity, um, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, Demetrius did, with the workmen of similar trades and decided to create somewhat of a a riot and said, Men, you know, our prosperity, our financial identity depends upon this business of making these little silver gods of our goddess. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. (laughs) Can I just push pause right there? (laughs) Gods made with hands are no gods at all. Let me just say this. If you have to make your god with your hands, you understand that that's not a god. (laughs) Not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Ephesus, the big deal of a city, um, was one of the, the temple of Artemis was one of the seven, seven wonders of the world at that point in time. An ancient Greek poet said of the temple of Artemis this, I have set eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon, and I've seen the statue of Zeus and the hanging gardens and the colossus of the sun and the high pyramids. But when I saw the house of Artemis, all of those other marvels lost their brilliancy. Ephesus was a big deal of a city. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage. You see the shattering of their identity when something was rocking what, what they built upon their financial lives, their identity of worship of Artemis. It was being rocked. They were filled with rage. They began crying out saying, great is Artemis, doubling down on their foundation. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater and they brought Paul there as well. So, verse 35, after quieting the crowd, the town clerk, so there was somebody who had sense here, 
The town clerk said, men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which apparently fell down from heaven? Apparently they had the belief that the image, the statue of Artemis fell down from heaven. So since these are undeniable facts, you ought also to keep calm and do nothing. Verse 41, after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Ephesus was a big deal of a city. Um, if you have the right amount of money and go on a cruise, you can go see it over the, the ruins of Ephesus over in modern-day Turkey as well. But I have a deal for you. Would you like to see it this morning without paying all the money? Would you like to see it? Okay. Here is the city of Ephesus. It is a reconstruction and a model of it. And um, I'm gonna, it's, there's no sound to this video. I'm just going to talk as we go through it. So uh, this is a recreation based upon the current ruins. By the way, I just love Google Earth as you begin to zoom into the city of, um, or the Turkey there is, you see where Turkey is, and the dot is where Ephesus is. Ephesus was the gateway city between the West, Greece and Rome, and the East, all of the Semitic um, and the Asiatic lands as well. Caesar Augustus, uh, you may have heard that term at Christ, around Christmas, established Ephesus as its Eastern Roman capital during, um, before the birth of Christ. Going down Main Street, so you can see just the majesty and the, the beauty of the city of Ephesus. Going down Main Street, we're heading ultimately to the, you can see in the distance there, the great theater. This is where they rushed Paul into. That theater, by estimates today, can hold 25,000 people. And the way they estimated the population of a town like a Roman, a significant Roman town is multiply the population of the theater by 10 and you get the city's population. So Ephesus was a city of about 250,000. There was Rossi Stadium right there. <laughs> and going down this particular um, street right here, we're going to the seventh or one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis right there that that poet said was more beautiful than anything that he had seen of the other seven wonders of the world at that moment in time. So zooming back out, that is the city of Ephesus, a, a Roman marvel and an amazing city, and Paul goes there. Paul goes right there. Turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 1. And today we're just going to read verses 1 and 2 today. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus about four years after he departed from that particular congregation. And in verse 1, the scripture says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's a common introduction by Paul. And if we read other, his other letters, they're very similar. But Paul's two-verse introduction is loaded with significant theology. It is an introduction that, um, yep, he uses with Philippians, Colossians, those kinds of things. And each time he uses it and writes this way, he reveals God's plan of the age. And it's easy to simply gloss over those introductory words to get to the good stuff of the actual letter. 
But God has one plan in this particular age that is revealed in all of Paul's introductory um, statements to his, the churches that he's ministering to. God has one plan in this age, and it's not establishing a religious center or a theater or an educational center or something like a great city like New York City where you can make your name, but he's calling humanity from every nation to himself through the message of the gospel into the church. So the seemingly insignificant church planted in this big deal of a city, Ephesus, represents an outworking of that plan. And Paul will start his exhortation to the Ephesians with this particular theological message, who you are. And why is that so important? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul gives a more extended exhortation about who believers are in Christ, probably because in a city like Ephesus, where everybody goes to make an identity for themselves, Paul wants to remind them from where a lasting identity and purpose and meaning is found that will not be crushed. And eventually, from that city, Ephesus, as we read in Acts chapter 19, the knowledge of the one true God, not the false god Artemis, but from that city of Ephesus, the knowledge of the one true God, after rocking the Ephesians' identity and their financial livelihood by their making money off of their silver statues, after rocking the Ephesians' identity, the knowledge of God spread to all of Asia, um, as Acts 19 mentioned. In fact, by the second and third centuries, all of Asia Minor was predominantly Christian at that moment in time and no longer pagan. So here's something that is fascinating. Apparently, Artemis, whose image fell from heaven, okay, was supplanted by the worship of Jesus, who was the one who truly came from heaven. Today, there is no longer any big deal of a city, Ephesus, but what remains is the church of Jesus Christ that is spreading throughout the entire world. So today, as we launch our series, Building Upon Our Heritage, um, the first part of our study is called Remembering Your Identity as One in Christ. And specifically today, you are saints. So Paul's introduction to the church at Ephesus reminds us of three unchangeable parts of God's plan upon which to build your lasting and stable identity. And again, when I say identity, all I mean is we all have a view of ourselves. What are we living for? What is our purpose in life? We all are constructing that day by day, moment by moment since our birth. And if you're going to have a lasting identity that will not face a crushing existential crisis someday, you have to be about what God is about So the first unchangeable part of God's plan is that there is one authoritative foundation upon which to build. Now let's go back to my example when I first started here, the the illustration of me. What foundation? What foundation was Brent Oak when attempting to build my life on through college? What was my foundation that I was attempting to build my life on? What was it? Okay, my academic prowess. I was not the athletic stud. I was not the ladies' man. I was not any of that, but I was what I was, what I thought. Um, I had intellectual skill in my own mind. What foundation was Madonna or is Madonna building her life on? Well, her provocative entertainment performances so that she might find out that she is somebody. 
What foundation was Michael Phelps building his life on? His swimming prowess. And he said, who am I outside of my swimming endeavors? You know, there are two statements by Paul that show us. He's speaking of authoritative foundations in life. And the first is this, an apostle or an ascent one. Paul, an apostle. I'm not sure if that means much to you. Sometimes the terms of Christianity and Scripture become so common to us, we forget what they mean. But that label by Paul on himself of his identity provides a boatload of theology about what we are to build our lives on as well. At major junctions in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, God sent human messengers to give his authoritative message And God demonstrated that these sent ones were from him by accompanying signs and wonders, miracles. So when God was doing his first work and calling out a people for his very own name, he raised up, you remember the name Moses, a prophet. And through Moses, if you remember anything about the Old Testament and the Exodus, God did a variety of miracles. That tradition continued in the New Testament when Jesus Christ selected men to accompany him. And those men witnessed all that Christ said and did. And then after Jesus finished his work on earth, Jesus commissioned his disciples to carry forth that authoritative prophetic work as sent ones to the world. Now, I'm simplifying the roles of prophets and apostles somewhat. But I I do want to say this. They also had the authority. They were endowed with the authority of God himself. In Matthew 28, 18, and I know we typically apply these verses to us, okay? Um, But they first were applied to the apostles, and they're not always applied to us in the same way. But notice what Jesus Christ said. Jesus came and spoke to the apostles saying, all authority has been given to me, and I'm giving that to you. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the nation of the Father, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The first recipients of that great commission were the apostles, and they were not quite the same as you and me today. In fact, we here at Faith Church believe that after the death of the apostles, there are no more apostles today. That role was unique for its time. They carried unique authority and did unique work, and I think we can show that from Scripture in verses like this, 2 Corinthians, for even if I, the Apostle Paul, should boast somewhat about our authority. They had God-ordained authority that you and I don't have, Pastor Viers doesn't have. They had a special type of authority. And that keeps coming up in other verses of Scripture as well. For this reason, I am writing these things in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not tearing down. For we never came to you with flattering speech, as you know, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. That's not the same as your pastors of the church here. The apostles were unique individuals, and God 
um, testified to their unique authority by signs and wonders. Notice this verse. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Here's my point. Okay? Here's my point, if you don't get anything else. There is no other work of God that has the authority and the foundation behind it than what God has done in and through the prophets and the apostles throughout history. And if you want a stable and a lasting life or identity, a foundation for your life, this is the only foundation on which you are to build, superseding you know, I was building my life around scientific knowledge, becoming the hotshot astronaut, and I was somebody in regard to, or at least I thought I was somebody in regard to my scientific intellectual knowledge. This supersedes building upon a foundation of science or a, a building upon a foundation of your business or building upon a foundation of a, your government or some earthly nation or building upon as much as we love our families and relationships, building upon some kind of a relationship that will ultimately not last. Later in Ephesians, we'll study this verse later this year, but Ephesians 2.19, um, well, I skipped this. I should have said, by the will of God, this is another statement that he said, by the will of God, the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. But in Ephesians 2.19, he said this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of our God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being himself the cornerstone. There, How many foundations do you have of your house? Tell me, how many foundations do you have? Tell me. Okay, everyone say one. Okay, one. Once you build a foundation, you don't build another one. The apostles and the prophets built a foundation. Now, let's get really practical here. What is that foundation that is laid by the apostles and the prophets? Just for a moment, you came to the church house today on this cold day. Hold up your Bible. Grab your Bible and hold it up or your phone or your phone if you have your uh, scripture in there. Keep holding it for just a moment. The prophets and the apostles recorded the very word of God. The Old Testament Okay. recorded by prophets. The books of the New Testament were authored or penned by associates of the prophets. The completed word of God is the foundation laid by the prophets and the apostles. Say this with me. I'm going to say it, then you repeat it. This is the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. Say that. This is the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. You can put it down now. That book, those words that you are holding up or that you held up are the foundation upon which God is building, and there is no other foundation. You know, folks, the older I get, um, the more I see how the Bible is a reliable foundation. I had all of my doubts, as many people do in my younger years, wondered about contradictions in Scripture, wondered about uh, creation, evolution. I, I've been through all of that I've been through all of that, okay? but I have experienced God's word as reliable through my young 55 years. I've experienced God's word transform me and give me hope. I have personally seen, so I've been a pastor now for 26 years. 
I have personally witnessed what God's word says about the ways of sin and the end of that path. Without exception, I've seen it. I've seen in people's lives, in my own life, that this is true and the only foundation. I have personally seen how God's word transforms other people. And every time I go to Israel, I've been there twice now, and I hear these archaeological stories of another dig. And every time they dig, you know what they dig up? More evidence that the Bible is reliable. You can't go to Israel and not say, how is this not true? So, while the mighty big deal of a city, Ephesus, is in ruins today, do you know what is not in ruins? <laughs> the Word of God. The Word of God stands forever. And that is what this church faith was founded upon, and that is what we must build our lives upon if we are to build upon our heritage. There is one foundation upon which to build your life and identity, and that leads us to our second unchangeable part of God's plan, which is there is one people being built, one people of God that is being built. You know, each one of us is trying to find a place to fit in and build our identity, for me, it was with the nerdy crowd and the engineers. That was what I was trying to fit in with and be the top dog there. Um, you know, I was, I was the classic academic nerd. I wasn't the jock. I wasn't the socially popular, nor the business savvy, nor the rich. Nor I wasn't all about relationships. I was about being the big deal and fitting in with the engineering crowd. Paul is writing to the group that God had established, and the only one, Everyone say, if you will, please, only one. Say only one. The only one that will last forever. Okay? And there are two descriptors of God's group that give us great insight into what group of people that God is building. And the first descriptor is, you are saints. The faithful of Christ Jesus. Faithful is, is another word for believers. Those set apart. He's talking about the church. And I know when we say that word saints, the term saints could be translated as holy one. And I know when we say holy one, it sometimes conjures up. These are the morally perfect or the morally pure people as well. It refers to their outward moral actions. Um, and while it can refer to that holy ones, we have to remember that God is making us holy, not that we are entirely holy now. In Ephesians 5, later on, Paul says that he might present to himself the church, the saints. Although we're not perfect now, in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be, future tense, would be holy and blameless. So God will be making his people, his church, blameless and morally pure over time. And I know, again, when we hear the word saints, we think of moral perfection or righteousness. And while that is a part of the concept, there is so much more that is more precious. Holy or set apart, holy ones or set apart goes back to something much more even beautiful. In our identity struggles, when we struggle with identity and me wanting to be a big shot astronaut, you wanting to be what you want to be, in our identity struggles, isn't the bottom line in our pride that we want to matter to somebody? And we want to be recognized as a big deal by those who matter the most. We want that. 
Let me show you something about the term holy one. Okay? The term holy ones goes back to Exodus 19, 5 and 6, where God said through the prophet Moses, he said this, Now then, when God was calling out his people, Israel, then, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession. The translation there is not probably the greatest own possession. It means more, there's something else going on there. And you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and holy ones, a holy nation. So the term holy nation is accompanied by the term own possession. Okay? The term own possession is probably an understatement. Here's what it means. The crown jewel of God. <sighs> crown jewel. If you go over to England, where are the crown jewels kept? Does anybody know? If you go over to England, where are the crown jewels kept? What? Tower of London. The crown jewels are kept under lock and key in a fortress. Okay? The crown jewels are the most treasured, <laughs> the, most secure, the most secure possession of the monarch. And when the monarch rises to put on his glorious splendor, when, when he rises to put on his glorious splendor, what does he reach for? He or she, king or queen, they reach for the crown jewels to adorn themselves. Now hear me, hear me, okay? Just take a look over at your neighbor. Just turn your head, look at your neighbor. Do you see the crown jewels right there? <laughs> Do you see them if they're in Christ? Your brother or your sister in Christ sitting next to you is part of the crown jewel of God. That will be kept safe through the end. They are under lock and key. And what do you do with crown jewels? You wear them and display them at the proper time when the monarch arises to put on all of his glory. What is the most big deal of a group to be part of? It's not your engineer society. It's not your athletes. What's the most big deal group to be a part of? Say the church. Say the church. The church. You want to be part of something permanent and that will last and is God's big deal, although it may not seem like it right now. How about being a part of the crown jewels of God that his son Jesus Christ will wear someday? and put on display at the right time. Your academic accomplishments will not be put on display. Your financial portfolio will not be put on display. Your athletic endeavors will not be put on display. Let me talk to the teens, you young men. Your abilities in Fortnite and Fortnite and Minecraft, your video game prowess will not be put on display. You who are in Christ are the biggest deal to the only one who matters, and that's God. If you're struggling with your, you know, today in our world, the gender identity thing is such a crisis of identity. People trying to figure out who they are, gender-wise, sexuality-wise, and all of us trying to find our identity in something. I don't know if you knew this, but Pastor Virus has written a book on Do You Believe What God Says About You? So as we go through this first part of the book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, this might be something else that you can continue to read alongside your study in the book of Ephesians 
to ground you in who you are and have a stable identity in Christ that will be permanent and you won't have to face the existential crisis when problems come. But not only is God calling out sinners to be his crown jewel, but he is doing it from the most unlikely places ever. The second descriptor of what Paul says about the group he's calling out is the group, can you believe this, in Ephesus. In Ephesus. Are you kidding me? Where everyone was seemingly the crown jewel of Artemis? (laughs) All of the Ephesians were the crown jewel of Artemis. How can God be making those people into his crown jewel? We'll be getting to how in just a moment as we close the sermon. But God's power is calling out a people who have made everything but him their crown jewel, meaning this, like in Ephesus, a people making Artemis or finances or learning or education their crown jewel. God's power is calling out a people who have made everything but him their crown jewel, and God is surprisingly making these people into his very own crown jewel. You know, that was always his plan from the beginning, to call out a people for himself. And here's the point. Here, here's the point of the entire sermon. If you want to build an identity that matters to the only one who matters, oh, friends, you and your life have to be built around God's plan, the church that he is building everywhere across the world. Faith, I want to just thank you. So as your pastors are so thankful for you because there's so much evidence There's so much evidence that you are the real deal. I'm not talking about always coming here on Sunday mornings, although you do that. But you're spreading the values of the head of the church throughout the community. In the way that you work at your business, working faithfully and ethically, and when you have the opportunity, sharing the gospel. The way that you're managing your homes, husbands trying to love your wives as the head of the church has given his life for the church. So I commend you, and husbands and fathers also, trying to raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Faith Church, for being all about God's plan, A, B, and C. Now, so there's only one authoritative foundation on which to build a lasting identity. Number two, there's only one group of people that God is building. And finally, number three, there's only one way to God. One way to God, and that is through grace. Paul's common exhortation here. Grace to you and peace from God our fathers, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that's a common statement. But Paul reminds the Ephesians how they were brought into this group and how they will continue. Grace to you. You've had it, and this is what you live by as well. Now tell me this. Tell me this. Not literally tell me this. Think about this question. Why is it that God is making a people, a people who treasured something other than him? Why is it that God is making a people into his treasured crown jewel? Why is it that he is making his people into a big deal? Why is it that he is making his people's name great at the right time? Is it because we were all so beautiful and polished and brilliant in the beginning? Is that why? Say no. Everyone say, please, no. No. In fact, it was just the opposite. While we were unpolished, unpolished, 
lumps of coal. (laughs) While we were unpolished sinners, God loved us. And in that love, he sent his only son, who indeed, think about this, he was truly the big deal. And he had a big name in heaven. But his son made himself and his identity of no account for us. Do you remember Isaiah 53 too? That was talking about the one who would come down from heaven literally, not like the false report of Artemis coming down from heaven. But when the big deal of a God actually did come down, what did he do with his identity? Jesus Christ had no form or majesty or appearance that we should be attracted for him. There was no seventh wonder of the world that temple built for him. In fact, he was despised and forsaken of men, like one from whom men hide their face. And we did not esteem him as a big shot. On earth, Jesus was not the one building a name for himself. He was not trying to be the big deal. He made himself the exact opposite of that, one of no reputation. Or even more, he had a reputation associating with sinners, And what is even more than that, he died between two criminals. That was his identity. He was numbered and named with the transgressors and the criminals. That was his identity. Why? Grace to you. Out of love for you to take on the name and the identity that we all deserve, the name that is truly ours, that of sinners and transgressors, not big shots. And therein is grace to you. Do you see his grace? Do you see his grace? And God the Father looked down at that one who took our well-deserved identity, that of sinners. God looked down at that one, Jesus Christ, who out of love did what he did and said, that one who loved like that and did not make a name for himself, I want to make that one my crown jewel my glory, my treasured possession. Thus, my son will have a name above every name and an identity above everyone else, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And guess what? I want a whole group of people to be just like him. So those who accept the son's work, God will make them like his son, the church, a people of grace, People who are themselves, this is where we should be. People who themselves are not trying to achieve an identity for themselves, but receiving one, a one that God will give them as grace-bought children, saints, the crown jewels of God. And what do grace-bought individuals do? They will not exalt themselves like I reveled in At the beginning of the illustration there, grace-bought individuals will not exalt themselves over the others, but they will extend the grace of Christ to others. And that's what God treasures above achievement, success, fame, riches, athletics, physical beauty, a people bought by grace and extending grace. Oh, friends, that's his crown jewel. Christ was named as one of us, Our deserved identity is transgressor so that one day we would be named with him, the crown jewel of God himself. 
If you are here and have not received the identity that God offers in Christ, please note that your efforts to make a name and identity for yourself, they will perish. They will perish. You'll feel like you're on an everlasting treadmill like Madonna. You won't. You'll have the existential crisis after your thing that you're living for is taken away from you. Who am I outside of the swimming pool? Michael Phelps. Please note your efforts to make a name and identity for yourself will perish. There is only one identity that will last out of grace-bought children of God. Believers, believers, how are you becoming more like the ultimate crown jewel of Jesus Christ who made himself of no account for the sake of simply loving others? When we give up seeking to make a name for ourselves, that is when we are the most free to love others, to extend grace like Christ has done for us, and that is the crowning jewel of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for giving us a sure foundation which to build our lives through the prophets and the apostles who gave us your very words. Thank you for your plan and why you are doing this is beyond us, but somehow to the praise and the glory of your grace that you're calling out of people, Father, so to exalt that grace and to show what is the crowning jewel of your character. So thank you for that, and may you make us a people more and more like your Son. In his name we pray, amen.